so how's it going? Um, this is Trevor, and you can find us at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or on Twitter at champagne sharks. But right now, uh, we have with us what's the alphabetical order? Let me think real quick. Okay, so yeah, it will be Steven Piccarella first. If you can just uh introduce yourself, let us know who you are and where we can find you. My name is Steven Piccarella, I'm a writer uh, and a musician and community organizer. I live in Philadelphia, um, I'm born and raised in New York, and you can find me at, at S. Piccarella uh, on Twitter. Okay, and we have Sam Rosenblum, uh, same thing. Hey, I'm Sam. Uh, I'm also from New York. I also live in Philadelphia now. Um, right now with the COVID pandemic, I'm unemployed and just reading and biking a lot. And uh, Stephen and I have been friends since we were like 12 years old. Yeah. And where in New York are you guys from? I'm from Queens. And uh, I'm from the Upper West Side. Okay. Uh, where about in Queens? I was uh, born in Flushing. Okay. Yeah. A lot of my family's from Flushing. Uh, I was originally from Astoria and then moved to Jackson Heights. Okay. So you were in the same general kind of seven train vicinity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So why I want to have you guys on today is uh, this is a topic that's been annoying me for like a while. And we know it's interesting not only does it never die, it kind of resurges uh, because in the 2000s, like in the aughts, uh, I feel like a lot of this animating impulse was behind that first wave of hipsters as well. Um, mm -hmm. The idea of re resurrecting punk. And I was one of the people I used to buy into a lot of these myths myself. And uh, I would say things like, oh, the hipsters are posers. They uh, don't really get the spirit of punk. And that wasn't maybe totally wrong, but... I think I was giving the original punk too much credit at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and to be clear on the record, I am a big fan of punk rock music. I still listen to it. I just kind of have gotten over like romanticizing it as politically coherent. I came across um, Stephen Piccarella because there was this tweet by this guy who was showing this TikTok girl. And the TikTok girl is one of those young kids who have kind of uh, discovered punk and they're like nostalgic for a time before they were born. And she put up, in case you didn't know, I'm the lead singer of a riot girl punk band spelled G-R-R-L. I'm involved in my local music scene. I'm a part of a punk collective and I've academically studied punk. Put it in plainly, <laughs> conservatism is antithetical to punk. That's not gatekeeping. Punk is a political counterculture that was created by oppressed people, peoples, and their allies to express their frustration with an oppressive system. Um, punk was founded by BIPOC, which is short for Black Indigenous People of Color, LGBTQ plus folks, and women. And then I tweeted uh, jokingly about it, like, oh my God, they've Tumblrized punk. I don't know where to start with this. And people got pretty mad at me. And um, <laughs> in the original thread, uh, Stephen tweeted this simple statement. I saw a lot of people getting mad at him. He said, punk was founded by middle-class dissidents as an apolitical reaction to counterculture. They, meaning the girl in the original video, seemed like a good person. And I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on the original TikTok by the girl, as well as all the different reactions um, you've seen and what it makes you think of. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I made a point of saying that uh, I thought that um, uh, the girl who made the video sounded, uh, seemed like a good person um, because, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing, like, to want to, uh, you know, 
claim uh, punk as uh, you know a space where you can like work out your um, your political values. Um, I I understand that like punk like attracts young people who um, are angry at authority and like sometimes it's a, it's a great place to like meet people and talk about politics, but. Um, you know, I I grew up I grew up listening to uh, I was interested in the New York punk scene before I was interested in hardcore or anarcho punk or anything like that. Um, my father um, was a was a music journalist in uh, the late seventies and you know spent time at CBGB and covering those bands and stuff. And what I know about that time period is that number one uh, in New York there was a lot of um, you know cheap real estate lying around. Um, which uh, made uh, the city available to, um, you know, uh, middle-class dis- dissidents is, is a, a term I'm using to mean um, people from uh, relatively um, comfortable families who want to create creative community um, as cheap- cheaply as possible um, without, like, you know, an institution, like an, a university supporting them or whatever. Um, and uh, it was possible in the 70s in New York for, for um, you know, primarily white uh, middle class people um, to be to be doing this. Um, and a lot of the like early um, punk musicians who I was a big fan of, like uh, Richard Hell and, and the Ramones and Patti Smith, um, were kind of of, of this uh, demographic. Um, and they were making music at a, a, a sociopolitical moment when... Um, the hippie counterculture, which um, was, you know, avowedly leftist and um, like politically aligned in, in uh, you know, at least a more specific way than punk, um, had kind of um, shown its uh, shown its limits and was falling out of favor. And um, you know, the the people who were founders of the punk music um, were kind of tired of music that. Uh, purported to have some, you know, leftist ideology associated with it. And instead, you know, we're, we're basically like expressing, uh, just a general kind of like nihilism or, or what, what I think of as a, as a pretty like apolitical worldview. Um, something I found pretty interesting in all those responses was how ahistorical a lot of it was. But when I clicked on people's links, well, I found pretty interesting. I found two trends of the most rapidly, actually, no, three trends. One was a lot of people that were saying stuff like, yeah, you don't understand the damn thing, blah, blah, blah. And I looked and the age was like 20 or the age was like 15. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to argue with you, you know? <laughs> and then I started thinking, maybe some of these people without their age are like 17 and 20 and I'm arguing with them too. So then that's what made me mute it. Uh, the other thing was a lot of people of color who kind of wanted it to be true, but they wanted it to be true by kind of stretching the limits of created. So they'd be like, um, you know, that type of guitar riff was um, created by Chuck Berry and this, that. And I'm like, if you want to talk about who created rock and roll in general, then yeah, you know, there's no denying that uh, it was like mostly black people and what people today would call um, white trash and things like that. But we're talking about specific moment, a specific scene, you know, mm-hmm. and then and then the same people who try to bring up this band death, which was around at the time, but the narrative that they created punk rock and everybody appropriated from them um is also uh i think just by looking at the timeline you can just easily disprove that and then the third trend i found was people from the uk i didn't realize how many people 
in America too, but especially in the UK, think the UK invented punk. Mm-hmm. Uh, like actually believe that's the um, history. And so they were saying, look at this stupid Yank trying to Americanize punk, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, Americans ruin everything. They even like ruined punk. And it's like, uh Okay, yeah. it's, a, it's an interesting one. Uh, but I was surprised how many people still believe. I thought like you had to be a real kind of square to still believe that the UK, I hate to use the word square, but you know what I mean. <laughs> like someone, someone who's not very versed in punk to think that the UK created it. But these are people who had like punk icons, punk up and down their um, accounts. And they were saying that this proves you don't know it if you think. New York invented punk. And one of them actually told me that. Well, let's be very, very clear that New York definitely did invent punk. (laughs) Sure. Um, You know, I think that that's like a non-revisionist way to look at it. Um, Mm -hmm. I I used to think so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, you know, I don't think like who invented what, like in terms of it was was New York or the UK, like matters all that much. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree with, with what both of you guys have said and like what Steven was saying. And it's, you know, it's funny, like we're talking about like people that are, you know, in the generation below Steven and I, and I think we're in the generation below you, Trevor. And like, yep. you know, Steven and I were when we were, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, like we were those you know, like those kids, like looking to like the past and like, and like, uh, you know, to the recent ish past to find like shit that was cool, you know? Um, and it's kind of funny, like the, especially with like, you know, some of the, like the Ramones, like I, you know, I, we grew up listening to the Ramones and that music was old then. And the Ramones were like looking back to what they thought was like more pure rock and roll. Like they were wearing motorcycle jackets. Cause like, that was like cool, like greaser yep. stuff. Yep. And like, you know, even rock and roll high school, that means very much harkens to the whole grease aesthetic. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, yeah. Or like, you know, it's, it's sort of like, American Graffiti, um, that movie came out in like the 70s and that was like a nostalgia flick. It was like a counterculture nostalgia flick about the 50s and like the Ramones weren't doing that same exact thing. But like a lot of those bands like, you know, I, I love their music and I don't think necessarily at all that like certainly not like the Ramones were like politically reactionary. But like it is, you know, it is it in some way like Something a culturally reactionary about that. I definitely yeah. agree. That's how I look into the past. I mean, have you guys seen Rock and Roll High School, the movie? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not too long after Greece. And I really feel it's in the same cultural vein. There's they're both tapping into something similar. Sure. I think another thing about New York, too, back then is that nowadays, even if you came from a relatively middle class background, you still couldn't do the type of life that those people were doing back then. Because like you said, the real estate was cheap. Mm-hmm. But uh, so even though they came from a middle class background, some of them might have been like uh, temporarily disowned or whatever. You can not work a lot of the time or just pick up a few shifts at some CD bar and just rehearse and practice and do the scene all day. Like when you... Um, read accounts of the time, like people would go to each other's shows or apartments, get high, um, watch each other rehearse, build ideas and make a real scene. But now you can't do that. Even if you have a middle-class background, you need to be working 
a decent amount of hours to keep your apartment in New York. Even if you have sharing an apartment with roommates, there's no, I haven't really worked for like weeks, but somehow I can get enough scratch to make my share of the rent. Like the whole scene is very, um, the whole scene is very different now. I don't think you can even keep artists like that in New York, you know, like who can just work on their craft, you know? Yeah. I think not even like, not even close anymore. Yeah. It's so expensive. I mean, that's like, you know, kind of basically why I, and I think Steven too, like why we ended up in Philly, you know? Um, yeah. Philly where right now, um, there are, um, you know, uh, economic conditions are probably like similar, um, more similar, uh, in Philly now than, uh, to the way they were in New York in the seventies, um, than they are in New York now. And that's like why, like, you know, Sam and I, um, when we were able, when we moved to Philly, um, after college, like we were also kind of like playing, uh, like DIY shows with other, with other bands, um, at these venues, um, where like it didn't, um, you know, take uh, a lot of money to keep them open and a, a similar kind of like, um, uh, something similar. I mean, Sam and I basically like are middle-class dissidents, you know, and yes. so we're like, we're, we're do- we, yeah, we were doing something very similar, very um, similar. Uh, in Philly to, to what, uh, you know, the New York punks were doing in New York in the seventies. And I think like what that shows about the, the New York punk scene and, and, and music scenes in general is, um, a lot of the time, like it takes like, um, favorable economic conditions, um, uh, to, to keep an art scene alive. And usually the people who are able to keep it alive in those, um, conditions are the people who are the most privileged. Um, when you're talking about, um, uh, a a community that is a creative community that's also, you know, committed to some kind of, um, you know, subversive uh, political way of life, like, you know, anarcho-punk or something like that. Um, That's like, that's not the kind of art scene that like flowers like in like, uh, like an urban cultural center. Um, Those are usually kind of like, like local um, small scenes that like crop up um, in, in kind of, um, quieter places, um, where, uh, you know, maybe later they like, um, get some, some attention from other people and become like influential, but like New York punk, I mean, New York punk is more similar to like, um, it has a closer connection to me to like the art world. Um, and which is like a very like kind of, uh, like elitist, um, uh, situation than, than it does to, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of leftist communities or fringe communities or whatever. Yeah. I think that's a great way to put it. Cause at that time, especially in downtown New York, I feel like art was getting so big. The post-Warhol, post-factory era, mm-hmm. the Julian Schnabel era, that whole era, art was getting so big, it kind of pulled everything else into its orbit. It sucked in hip-hop and graffiti, mm-hmm. it sucked in um, the Basquiat's of the world, Madonna, pop, like anything downtown, anything downtown, I think, was kind of naturally pulled into art's art's orbit back mm-hmm. then. So yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, one of the things that I find so interesting, though, is that the myths have persisted so long about what punk was. And I think to a degree, there was a type of punk that is not that different than what these people are imagining. And I think a lot of it is actually a reaction itself to the original punks. Like, I know a lot of people, there were scenes in different parts of the country 
you know, like hardcore where some people were straight edge. They didn't do any drugs. Some people were very avowedly anti-fascist and were against uh, Nazis and right wingers and certain types of skinheads and all this stuff. And one of the things I was trying to tell people was like, if punk was created in, in that as idyllic and progressive a milieu as you're claiming, why would all the later punk be talking about all these Nazis in the scene? They had mm-hmm. have been there somewhere, you know what I mean? For the people to start reacting against uh, the reactionaries, you know, but uh, people weren't trying to hear that. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think like the, that uh, reading over that Lester Bangs piece that you sent about like the use of uh or like the casual and ironic racism in in that like new york punk scene is you know that's like really interesting and like a lot of the stuff in that article like could be i feel like you know could be written today you know very much so um and and not even just for music in politics now right yeah there's a lot of people who have become obsessed with slurs so yeah absolutely and like you know the the I think like that that piece is really good and like uh the he says like um you know this is like I I kind of uh agree with he says um if there's nothing more poisonous than bigotry there's nothing more pathetic than liberal guilt mm-hmm. and like you know I think I kind of agree, I to a large degree agree with that, agree with that sentiment. And like when it comes to like looking at a it's also like we're talking about punk and it's like such a huge a huge category of music and like when he's talking about what he's talking about there is is that like original New York scene and um I don't know like thinking about like analogies to today like the ironic racism or or is it ironic or does it matter that whole argument um which I think is like a important argument um but like one of the outcomes of of what he's talking about there in terms of like the the way that like slurs and racism um, existed in that scene. Like then 30 years later, you have Vice and like Gavin McGinnis is like a punk mm. and then goes on to start the Proud Boys. So it's like, I don't think, I don't really think it's like an either or. Like I think that punk has been, punk in the broad sense has been like extremely reactionary and been a home for, you know, a, like straight up white supremacists and Nazis. And also on the other hand, like, a home for leftist politics. Um, I think because like we're in America, the uh, it's a lot easier to get the ball rolling with reactionary politics than it is to uh, and have an impact with reactionary politics than it is to with like leftist politics. I also I think too that that reactionary pose makes a great camouflage as well as kind of um, recruiting ground because it it makes me think there was this old onion piece where somebody titled it help no one can tell i'm wearing this suit ironically and this guy <laughs> goes through this whole column about how he had a great bit and he started wearing a suit and people couldn't tell that he was wearing it ironically so he just kept upping the bit the column ends with uh so i've just been promoted to middle management at this <laughs> fortune 500 company my 401k is really rolling and you know people still aren't getting the bit you know i go by my friends and they call me a suit and i don't i don't get it you know like uh i thought re- pushing it this far is really gonna you know let them know that uh i was putting it on and i don't know if i'm gonna be able to invite them to my wedding you know like he's, he's, he's uh getting married and doing the whole the whole night and yeah. um 
But I bring him that story to say, like, there's a lot of people who think they're doing a bit and then they assume the guy next to them is also doing a bit. And the two of you are doing the same thing. But this guy, uh, his bit is pretending he's doing a bit. He's um, mm-hmm. kind of testing the waters. And I think Gavin McGinnis was that guy. He, Because um, he was always doing slurs and saying crazy stuff. But then every time he would push it too far, he would kind of roll it back and be like, oh, you know, I didn't really mean it. And then a lot of people who I'm sure today would be like horrified that they did this would defend them and be like, oh, he's taking the piss out of racism by doing all this stuff and then Gavin McGinnis would be like yeah that's what I was doing you know mm-hmm. and, you know yeah. he really he really wasn't he had a white supremacist tattoo even before he started Vice like people have kind of realized this after the fact that one of his tattoos is for a white power band in Montreal and that you know the clues were always there that this wasn't actually a bit so yeah. ha- like three quarters of the people in that scene were just aping him and uh, doing the same stuff and cheering it on thinking that they were doing a bit alongside another guy who was doing a bit who totally it turns out wasn't doing a bit yeah yeah (laughs) no um i think like one of the um crucial mistakes people make in in romanticizing a movement like punk is like mistaking like underground or fringe culture um for like you know progressive or radical culture like like uh, a movement like punk that kind of just like starts like in a political void um it's happening like you know outside the mainstream quote unquote but like really all that means is that like the people who are doing it are um in a in a kind of like you know nebulous sense um trying to create like a social space um outside of like those that exist and like the kind of people who do that like a lot of the time they're, you know, actual, you know, radicals who really want to like change the structure of society or just like don't like, you know, can't like find themselves living comfortably within it. Um, and a lot of those people are just, you know, antisocial in a in a much more uh, kind of uh, hateful um, and insidious way. And like, you know, a scene that like is not really like married to like an ideology like punk, like it's, it's you know, it's going to be a home for all of these people and they're like especially if it's like a lot of like you know kids or like people um who are you know not necessarily like uh socially assimil- assimilated at all like yeah you can literally be just like hanging out with with a legitimate nazi without knowing it um if there was like yeah if there was a if there was an onion article about punk like the headline would be like uh help no one can tell i'm wearing this swastika ironically <laughs> 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 and that yeah I, absolutely i think i'll you know then the again like that lester bangs are you know piece he's talking about like the use of like that kind of iconography and like that has a long history you know in punk and like in you know trying to be and i and i i think he's right that as you were saying trevor like a lot of people were doing that as a bit like to be as um as upsetting to the status quo or to the hippies or to mom and dad as they could be um but yeah like the problem is like the then you end up you know with uh, perpetuating sometimes yeah same thing also i think there's a certain amount of privilege that it takes to be able to unilaterally declare in the postmodern way that this stuff doesn't matter anymore you know because in a way i think it's kind of like telling on yourself in a way because Mm -hmm. um i think very jewish or you know black people would be as cool with that even on the scene but when you're able to do that i think to a certain degree you're kind of revealing i don't really have a history at least not in my recent 
uh, cultural or intergenerational memory really being on the bottom of anything, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it unwittingly, even though it was very much a movement that kind of prided itself on slumming and performative uh, poverty a lot of the times, it had a lot of trappings of privilege even mm -hmm. as it was trying to rebel against what it viewed as privileged people. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the most revealing stuff in the in the Bangs piece is the um, the quotes from Ivan Julian, who was uh, the guitarist of Richard Hell and the Voidoids, um, who was one of the few black people on the New York scene um, who moved to New York, like not necessarily like looking for um, you know uh, anti-racist community, but certainly looking for like creative community with people like he would be able to like work together comfortably with um and uh he like was you know playing shows with um and kind of like socializing with you know a lot of the people that like lester bangs is is exposing as having been like casually racist in private um including bangs himself um but he you know he re basically like reveals that like every time like regardless of like the fact that it was like part of the like social space that he had to be able to like navigate successfully to like be a successful punk musician um like every time someone like used the n-word around him like he remembered it like he didn't forget it and he like um you know felt uh the the same kind of like uh exactly the aberrant feeling that you would expect so yeah yeah i mean it's interesting in that piece like he when he calls out he calls out lester bangs or he doesn't even call him out he but he like yeah, he makes note to Lester Bangs of a time that Lester Bangs used the N-word in a conversation with him. And it, that incident had taken place two years ago. And it's like in that moment, like a little like wake up call or whatever you want to say for Bangs. One of the things about that piece, right, that I found really interesting is I discovered in the 2000s or the 2010s. At that time, I think we were in a new postmodern era where everyone thought they were kind of post-racism, post-sexism. You know, like I feel like that era, there was a lot of edgelordness in the air. I think it's kind of how Vice was able to thrive. It was around the time of things like The Man Show and uh, some of the more problematic aspects of Dave Chappelle. Things that I think probably would be really tough to sell now. But mm -hmm. at that time, people, a lot of people remember this piece as Lester Bang's worst piece. And when I used to read a lot of, like I found this on different like forums and different places where there were a lot of what you would call the time uh, hipsters. This thing was really remembered as um, his worst piece. And some people were saying that he um, got bitten by the political correctness bug. And there is this wow. myth. I don't know if it's true because honestly, I've learned people lie a lot on the internet, but <laughs> they were claiming that uh, he regretted the piece and that, you know, he thought he went uh, too far. But I've looked it up and I've not been able to find proof that he um, did. But some people by hearsay or secondhand claim that he um, regretted writing. But the thing is, even if worst case, he did regret it. It doesn't mean it's wrong. He might have just thought it was, he got too much grief precisely because it was too on the point. But I did find that funny how that uh, was kind of how the piece was viewed for a second in the 2000s and stuff. Whereas now, whenever I see it cited, I don't really see that pushback anymore. I think people have kind of stopped that narrative. I mean, I think that's the most, uh, that's more telling about like the sociopolitical climate in the, in the OOs and the tens than it, than it is about, um, Lester Bangs and that piece or the, the punk scene, because like that, that piece, like he's talking about like political correctness and he's talking about like political sensitivity and he's, he's being, um, 
pretty, um, he's, you know, he's taking those ideas seriously, but the piece is also edgy. Um, and he's, he's like, you know, he's being very honest in a way that's like, you know, I don't imagine is easy about, about like moments in, in which he's, you know, yeah, said yeah. really offensive shit. <laughs> yeah. I'll even yeah. say it's arguably way more edgy than whatever was passing for edgy in the 2000s <laughs> and the 2010s for sure. Definitely. It's more edgy than the do's and don'ts and vice. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I think um, just like one thing, one other thing on that article that it made me think about was like, uh, I don't know, like looking, looking at um, the I don't even I I mean, I'm kind of checked out of like, what is punk? What you know, who, what like the state of quote unquote, like punk rock is today. But like thinking about like, you know, any moments like I have been like, oh, damn, that is like that is fucking that is fucking edgy. And like for (laughs) me, (laughs) that was, uh, you know, within my lifetime, at least like. That was like or like like original like odd future like the first mm-hmm. like Earl record and like you know them saying like swastikas on the Letterman and like that was like all these black kids like you know fifteen to twenty year old group of black kids like saying that shit and then like you know the most just saying the most vile you know Earl Sweatshirt saying like he's he's a fifteen year old kid and he's saying like the most vile shit oh yeah you can think of and I mean I fucking love those artists like. I think they're amazing. And like, you know, it it was just interesting, like being like, oh, yeah, like they they kind of that. I mean, you know, it's almost corny to say, but like they were certainly punk rock. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, you know, for better or worse, like like in the best way and the worst way. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Like I always tell people that uh, to me, like Odd Future doesn't really come from a hip hop tradition. They just happen to rap like Mm -hmm. they really I think you could trace their lineage back more to um, Eminem them and juggalos and punk like they kind of if you can just trace it all the way back because i discovered eminem when he came out he used to always make fun of the insane clown posse and i always thought okay the insane clown posse must be like a vanilla ice or something like really really corny and then i finally listened to insane clown posse only like for the first time maybe like five six years ago and when i heard them i was like you know this is not that different than eminem honestly like mm-hmm. eminem is just a, a hyper lyrical juggalo you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the day that's all it really is he's yeah he's, you know and the, honestly like they were competent rappers they weren't like horrible like they were they mm-hmm. were listenable they were rapping about the same stuff uh killing people and drugs and, and and all this stuff and i found like this guy in that area um isham who was doing this kind of horrorcore stuff that i guess inspired all of them in detroit but yeah i mean like i feel like that detroit scene that proto-punk scene the the actual punk scene like it has a straight through line through to like things like insane clown posse eminem and earl sweatshirt and those kind of guys you know like i don't think regular black dudes from the hood really um want to rap about um strangling their moms and putting their <laughs> girlfriends in cars and mm-hmm. doing shrooms so yeah it's uh like i think that's more authentically punk than a lot of the things that these kind of woke people are trying to make punk in a revisionist in a revisionist way like this idea of the um, oppressed 
oppressed communities banding together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, like you said, it's, it's punk like for better and for worse. I mean, when I was thinking about, um, odd future, um, uh, because I honestly, like I imagine they would come up during this call, but, um, I was thinking about the fact that like, um, uh, the, the sixties counterculture by the late seventies was kind of this like sanitized, like, like arena friendly, like version of itself. And like, I think like something similar, like around, like the late 2010s like it happened to hip-hop like I think there's a difference between um like like 90s hip-hop um and then like like Jay-Z and Kanye West like which you know arguably I mean I'm a huge fan of both but like that is like some of the like that's like pretty much as mainstream as music gets. Oh, and yeah. I think, and, and uh, something ironic as well is that, um, odd future who were reacting against like, um, the, the mainstream hip hop, um, of that era that, you know, kind of, um, uh, originated as, as, uh, a movement outside the mainstream. Um, the odd future kids are actually like comparatively privileged as well. I think to a lot of rappers, they're from like, a um, uh, like they're from like nice neighborhoods in, yeah, in California. Yeah. They, yeah, they're, yeah. they're honest about it, you know? And yeah, but that's not that different also from a lot of the New York. I mean, this was something that's kind of surprised me because I used to kind of believe in a lot of the myths. And when I started looking up where a lot of people were from on that scene, it was pretty surprising. Like, yeah. I won't say they had easy lives. You know, they had their, I mean, trauma is relative and stuff. But for a lot of these people, like their biggest trauma was, you know, their parents divorcing or, you know, things like that. Some people, I think... I think some of the more objectively legitimate trauma had to do with people who were gay and weren't accepted and were kind of driven from home. So technically they were of privilege, but like like Lou Reed had stories where I think they made him get lobotomies to try to, not lobotomies, electroshock therapy to try mm-hmm. to get the gay out of him and stuff. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's generally horrifying. But mm-hmm. there was a lot of people who were just kind of bored middle-class dilettantes. They didn't really have a share of that sort of trauma, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in especially like, you know, the Velvet Underground um, were like playing, they were like precursors to punk, they were playing in, in the mid 60s. And like, at that time in America, like, even to like, sing a song about like, you know, being friends with a, you know, uh, like, someone who somebody's transgender was like, like, politically shocking in a way that uh, you know, like, I honestly, I mean, I, I think like free speech, like as a, as a, um, uh, as a political idea, um, uh, had, had some real value in the sixties in the way that it doesn't now. And I think that was like one of the things that like made, um, punk, like politically like resonant at the time. And if you, um, you know, transmute those ideas to, you know, 2006, like, um, uh, Vice is, like, trying to use, like, that, um, uh, the capital that free speech had at a time when it was more politically subversive, subversive just to say, like, the most horrendous shit possible. Yeah, and I think part of the problem is even back then, there were a lot of people who were doing the same thing, mixed in with the people who were doing what you said. Like, there mm-hmm. were, for example, I know with Velvet Underground, some of the stuff they were doing was uh, pretty subversive just by talking about uh, waiting for the drug dealer or being friends with a transgender guy. And in a way, just talking about it gives a lot of people um, a voice that they wouldn't have in pop culture normally. But then I ended up finding out that Nico was just a straight up like Nazi in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> 
True. <laughs> yeah. And they kind of clash with her a lot over it, you know, because they're like, oh, this chick's crazy. <laughs> Does she really believe this stuff? And she would kind of say some horrible stuff that they had to um, distance themselves from. So I think like free speech as a value neutral concept just kind of doesn't work in the long yeah. run because sooner or later, you have to decide if some speech is harmful or some speech isn't. Like, I think very few people can actually keep to the concept, you know? Um, Sooner or later, something happens that makes even... I mean, for example, look at all those right-wing guys who keep talking about free speech, free speech, and then Colin Kaepernick took a knee and then they're flipping out, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. All that free speech stuff goes out the window. They want the NFL to never hire him again. Like, I think very few people are very able to really commit to the idea of... Um, I support all speech. I'm a free speech uh, absolutist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I don't know. I think that people that like claim being a free speech absolutist as like their, you know, po- core political identity, it's like, that's just like fucking corny. <laughs> also, yeah. Like, yeah. it's like yeah. not, I don't know. It's, you know, I, it's almost a I, cop out. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is a cop out. I think that I, I think in a lot of cases and like, you know, not, not that like free speech issues aren't, aren't important. And like, there have been like, you know, I mean, look at like, the you know the the uh in the 90s and stuff like senate committees convening to talk about nwa and fucking judas priest and mm-hmm. like right. all that shit like it it's not you know i'm not saying you know there is no such problem it's just yeah see but the problem with that right is that which i feel like is constantly kicking the football down the field is the reason why free speech is important in that aspect is because at the end of the day if you ask people who are defending nwa and two live crew in those situations they'll say i don't think this is that harmful or I don't think this is worthy of this type of censorship. And also it's uh, racist because there's a lot of white people getting away with stuff this bad or worse. So at the end of the day, even then, even the people who are saying that it's about free speech, at the end of the day, they're usually making a value judgment, the actual thing at, at hand. So to me, you might as well just skip the uh, free speech part altogether and just argue the merits of the thing. Because I think, like you said, it's kind of a cop-out to stay stuck in the... I feel like a lot of people stay stuck in the free speech thing as a way to defend something, good or bad, without having to explicitly say, I think this is not so bad. Yeah, as I was talking about Lou Reed, I, I realized that I don't actually know when um, like speech like stopped being something that was like legally regulated in the States, because I know that like the, you know, um, it's a it's a big like, you know, free speech origin story that like Lenny Bruce used to like get arrested on stage for, for you know, using uh, certain words. Um, and uh, I think like if if there is a way in which um, the state is like regulating speech um, so that it like uh, those regulations can be like weaponized against, um, you know, people of color or um, gay people great, or whatever. A great book on this. Uh, he was a guest on the show and I always try to recommend this book. Uh, but P.E. Moskowitz, The Case Against mm-hmm. Free Speech. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a really good one. But in addition to its um, thesis, it has like the first third of the book and so 
forth, all about free speech. And interestingly enough, he talks about all the things that you said, uh, when it got weaponized, how people used to think about it, and that it was very different than how we think about it now. And most interestingly, how it started off as a left-wing rallying cry uh, in the 90s. And so, you know, like when you bring up the NWA thing, and it's kind of morphed into this right-wing rallying point, where now the left is pointed as the people against free speech. And he's the one who had the um, point that at the end of the day, just using free speech doesn't really work because uh, people just weaponize it at at will. Like everyone Mm -hmm. who claims to be for it when it's um, convenient for them to be for it, when something reaches uh, the level that affects their own sensibilities, they tend to throw it out the window, whether uh, left and right. So it's kind of become a placeholder for arguing uh, and litigating actual societal values. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's a pretty interesting book. It's a, it's a good book. I highly um, recommend it. I told him that he kind of, through no fault of his own, messed up because shortly after he published the book, the conversation re-entered the mainstream pretty hard. But now everybody's calling it cancel culture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So uh, I was saying if he actually called the book The Case for Cancel Culture or something like that, <laughs> it would have probably, probably been booked left and right. Um, it would have been yeah. numbers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, uh, it's... Uh, uh, like an interesting um, narrative uh, arc that you can use to talk about um, someone like, you know, uh, Johnny Rotten, uh, the lead singer of the Sex Pistols, who like um, was uh, touted in the UK press as like a like a like an outspoken um, advocate for speech like against the state or whatever, like politically like, um, you know, transgressive speech um, when really a lot of like Sex Pistols lyrics um, are not um, are not talking about anything specifically political. They're just talking about like anarchy is just kind of like a general idea. And, uh, you know, ne- you know, uh, in 2016, like uh, Johnny Rotten came out as a Trumper, um, <laughs> which like makes perfect sense, really, because mm-hmm. like um, if you if you're angry at the state, but you don't like feel like solidarity, like with like anyone, you know, of, of, of your class or whatever, then like, you, you know, that anger can be like, you know, directed towards anyone. And obviously, like Trump is very good at doing that. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's pictures of him back in the day wearing swastikas. And oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's sure. not that big a because if, if your goal is to be contrary for the sake of being contrarian a lot of the time, which a lot of people don't want to admit, but there was a big aspect of that in punk. Because not to say everybody was just being contrarian for contrarian's sake, but mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of revisionism to say that nobody was or that, and isn't everything doesn't have to be one reason anyway. You could be 20% that, 80% sincere or whatever, but I think even in the best cases, there was always a little aspect of contrarian for contrarian's sake. It, that same impulse that had a lot of them wearing uh, swastikas, Sid Vicious and Johnny Rotten were both photographed, and Susie Sue too. All three of them, mm-hmm. I remember being photographed in the 70s with swastika. Is um, MAGA really that much more uh, subversive than than that? I would say <laughs> not. I mean, it's pretty much the most contrarian thing you can do now in the media, you know, to sure. say you're for that. That's why I think it's not that ridiculous what people say sometimes when they say that conservatism is the new punk rock. I think because people romanticize what punk must mean, you know, as being something with fixed values, they get really objective or say it's stupid. But I think there is a sense in which that's not as ridiculous. Like, there is a ridiculous aspect to it, but it's not as ridiculous as people make it out to be um, 
either. Yeah, in the in the Baffler piece you sent us, Trevor, um, uh, there's like a lot of really interesting stuff about like the commodification of alternative culture and how like it's become like uh, like a mainstream like branding uh, you know uh, strategy to like you know use like uh, models who are like you know dressed like punks or whatever. Um, and if people are like associating punk with leftist ideology um, and associating like alternative or like you know anti authoritarian culture um uh with with the mainstream if the mainstream is like using it um as a as a marketing uh strategy then you know it makes sense to think of uh conservatism as um uh as subversive because like it's not what you see on tv all day it's not like what's uh you know sold as like sexy or what you're supposed to aspire to yeah i mean look at fox news in its own way it's it's uh i mean it's owned by a huge mogul it's not a small company but the ethos of it especially when it launched it was just like this um presenting itself as a scrappy upstart in the face of all this uh centrist liberal media and it wasn't wrong it was really the only one um taking that stance it's, it's an interesting uh type of thing but the most pervasive myths i find about punk also have to do with what the british scene was because one thing like people get really shocked when i say this but i don't think it's that much of a reach but the sex pistols were i think more boy band than they were a real <laughs> mm-hmm. um politically evolved anything definitely yeah i mean their manager malcolm mclaren um like was a kind of like entrepreneur and like art world uh like hanger on who like just literally just like wanted to like get famous and like sell like some like kind of uh basically create like a fashion brand um and he like like went to new york and like saw richard hell play and was like this is something like you can you can like manufacture and market and then he just found these kids um and like you know i think john lyden was like 19 Mm -hmm. like when when that when the band started um he was from a working class family um and was a you know kind of like art school dropout uh just generally like angry kind of guy um but you know there was a lot of like leftist activity um in in the uk in the 70s um there was like you know factional warfare between um you know the irish republican army and the the uda and the and the state um and the sex pistols weren't aligned with any of that like they didn't care about it they were like this this is uh this is all like hubbub over nothing like they just wanted to like you know make noise and piss people off right and also like you know with the uk stuff it's funny like it's like yeah i mean especially with the sex pistols i think the clash is a little bit different but like with the sex pistols or buzzcocks or whatever it's like yeah i mean like thatcherism was creeping in like their their uh you know their like social democracy was like completely falling apart mm-hmm. at that time you know like council housing was being privatized like there was a lot of of shit to be fucking pissed about and you know i don't think i think it's like silly to to like think that like you know if you are a subversive or an artist in general that like you need to be like directly responding to to you know the current moment like in your lyrics or whatever but like the sex pistols as you said it was just like yeah i mean it was edgy to be edgy and like to freak people out Mm -hmm. and like i don't to be fair i like the music a lot 
Oh yeah, me too. Because yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't want people to think that we're just like three people poo pooing the, the <laughs> actual art. Like I own yeah. a lot of this stuff that I, I'm talking about, and you guys are fans as well. Because I think mm-hmm. nowadays people think everything is all or nothing. If you're being critical about something, you must hate everything, you know. And if you like something, you're supposed to like everything across the board about it. So I just kind of want to make that clear. Um, yeah, like I think one difference is that, like you said, a lot more of the people in the UK scene seem to have actually been working class or yes. at least class conscious. But in general, I think the UK has a better class vocabulary than America, whereas... Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. One thing from the outside uh, looking at it all, I feel like if the New York stuff was in the orbit very strongly of the... Uh, art world and to a lesser degree the fashion world because I think even fashion was in the orbit of the art world in, in downtown New York at the time I would say the um, UK stuff seemed very much in the orbit of the fashion world like Malcolm McLaurin I know he ran a, a fashion boutique and I think mm-hmm. had a brand Vivian West Westwoods um, mm-hmm. Susie Sue I think had some kind of fashion connection too I think like I know they were a lot of them were in or art school dropouts and stuff like that but I, I feel like fashion was like a very big through line in in the British stuff. Yeah, um, I don't know much about um, the the store that um, Malcolm McLaren managed with. Uh, I think Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood managed um, a, the store called Sex. I think they managed it together um, and it was like a like uh, like a fashion boutique and also like I think kind of a sex shop and I think Susie Sue may have like modeled for them but um, uh, Vivian Westwood now I, I think like is like literally in the fashion industry and like a fashion icon <laughs> She's fashion and, royalty now. She's very in yeah. the mainstream of fashion. The number one. one and of so them. what? Yeah. What you're like? Um, I, I, specifically, like the the fashion um, trends that were like. Um, created in New York, um, not with an eye to, um, uh, becoming like broadly popular, uh, you know, they weren't, uh, these were not original ideas in the UK and they, they just happened to like be able to like be marketed. And now, like, I mean, I, I, that's, yeah, that's the funny thing about like punk, um, like talking about it as subversive. It's like, I don't think there's any part of like mainstream society that like punk, like hasn't touched at this point. You know, I think it's like part of the like um like standard vocabulary of of pretty much like any brand <laughs> yeah and i think it went mainstream at least the fashion part of it i think it went mainstream probably faster and harder in england than it did in new york because when you look at a lot of new york media of that time you didn't really see a lot of uh, punk stuff or punk characters anything from 1974 to 1977 really mm-hmm. you know except for like a movie here and there i forget what the first like real punk movie was um what what was it called there was like a handful of them i'm just drawing a a blank but in england pretty early on the 70s you had like punk characters and sitcoms and tv shows or a bunch of there was that show the young ones and one of them was like a punk in, Hmm. in the uk so yeah i think um in a strange way despite how political and more overtly um anti establishment the uk version of punk was it also seemed to have gotten commodified normalized way faster there as well i could be wrong and i mean they did have listen they had great style you know totally <laughs> totally there's the other thing it's like i'm also you know I, I i totally agree with you and like the you know i think that you know i think a mistake that like gets made all the time with i mean and this is just my perspective and obviously people have very different perspectives on this but that like you know that broadly like studying like these cultural moments is like 
that they that they have any sort of relevance or power politically in any lasting way and like again and again we're like shown that they don't i think um like you know the 60s rolled on and you know uh you know the summer of love happened and you know there's this utopian dream and like the thing is like this shit like political work takes a lot of work Mm -hmm. and like people can express political views i'm not saying like that that's pointless or anything but it's not the same as like as uh doing political work. i mean you can and, even see it you know, now with um podcasts with, with oh, yeah. podcasts <laughs> right now i mean there's a lot of people that think podcasts are the face of of politics and at the end of the day even though a lot of podcasters themselves might not even say that there's a lot of people who act like it you know but mm-hmm. at the end of the day it's really the activism and the organizing that really does anything no i mean if anyone 30 years from now like i'm just gonna say this now like if you're listening to this 30 years from now don't don't tell your friends that we are like the political vanguard right now we're, li- we're literally just making a podcast yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know i think i think that yeah i think that people really really get confused with that like you know and i don't think you know i i partake in a variety of different uh you know ostensibly leftist podcasts and and read shit and blah 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 and like i think part of that you know there you can get um you know, some shit can be like to some degree educational or turn you on to new ideas and stuff. And I think that's all, that's all great. Um, but like, yeah, I don't, you know, I think that, I think a huge, you know, one of the the hippies biggest mistakes or the CIA's greatest victories, whatever you want to, <laughs> yeah. whichever way you want to look at it was like convincing the largest generation in American history, which was the baby boomers that like doing culture was the same thing as doing politics. Mm. Yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, the real, the people that were really doing politics, like, you know, the, the FBI was all the way up their ass and coming out of their mouth and the CIA as well and like we're actively like having them killed so it's yeah, right, yeah. you know a great a great example too I'm sorry did you finish your point okay. yeah 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 that uh, was a-, a great example of Rick Perlstein had a, a well, he had a series of book but he had one about Barry Goldwater and mm. you know it might have been called Reagan then is that what it was called it was, he, yeah I think that was, bunch, it was Reagan but it was about uh Barry Goldwater and his loss and how even though Barry Goldwater technically lost it was a big rallying point and turning point for conservative grassroots politics because the kind of machine and sentiment and whatever that that Goldwater created, it lost in the short term. I think something similar kind of happened with, with Occupy, where Occupy seemed to have like lost or lost its way in the short term. But I think the rise of Bernie Sanders and AOC and all those people was mm-hmm. kind of the aftermath of that, like like what mobilized from those um, ashes. Like uh, his thesis is that something similar happened with um, Goldwater, where from the time he lost up until Reagan won in the 80s, there was a lot, a lot of right wing grassroots organizing. But when you think back to that era um, and you think of the political culture, the optics are all what you guys describe hippies punks yeah all this stuff i think it's a great example of how culture isn't the same as politics because they definitely won the culture war yes the, the liberals you know uh mm-hmm. everyone remembers it as when someone says 60s or 70s the first thing people think is either hippies or disco or you know arena rock or something but a lot of the best political mobilizing was done on the right off off stage out of sight yep and i think the you know it's i don't think it's like necessarily 
like the, I don't think it's like necessarily like a coincidence that like all this cultural stuff was happening. Like when the, when like American capitalism and, and, and like American or like while America was like testing out and, and England and Thatcher and all those freaks like were testing out, you know, this new, you know, neoclassical economic policy and neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, I think, you know, they for sure, I, I really think that people, I, I mean, I know I have like get conf- really get confused that like, yeah, the liberals or the left or whatever, very, very broadly speaking speaking one one and continues to win the culture war and like the right wing and conservatives um have have won the political war like you know it's not even close they they won and uh and i think you know i know for myself and i think in general like people are as you said i think you know with occupy and all this other shit like people are uh maybe waking up to that or 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 kind of actually looking at the history or whatever um but yeah i think people people do get confused (laughs) by those two things yeah for sure you know yeah um i think uh i i think one of the kind of uh uh lasting um consequences of um the the kind of um reimagining culture as politics um is uh you know what uh what the the kind of the kind of you know politically motivated culture that actually arises um in the 80s um and is driven by gen x like um i think like when you see punk like become political in the united states is is after reagan is elected um and punk has mm-hmm. already you know um moved from new york to the uk and back and then there are younger kids who are who are uh like aware that that there is like a, a, a new like right wing culture that they're growing up around, um, and then then you start to see uh, the hardcore scene um, mm-hmm. and like uh, punks um, and and bands um, starting their own labels and kind of like booking their own tours. Um, at, you know, as as a reaction against um, the like uh, kind of like new um, uh, gospel of uh, consumerism and and uh, that. That DIY culture, like, basically turns into, like, what, uh, you know, Beto O'Rourke tried to sell as, like, <laughs> Fugazi capitalism, which yeah. is basically, it's just, it's just small business capitalism. Yes. Did he actually yes. call it Fugazi capitalism? He did. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was he a did. real thing. <laughs> <laughs> Really funny. I was like, that is just horrifying enough to actually be a real thing. And sure enough, <laughs> it was. Yep. It was. Um, you know, like one thing I found very interesting about uh examining the punk rock ethos and stuff was when you, I started making the connection to just how much Gen X created stuff had the same ethos, even if it wasn't overtly aesthetically punk. And what I mean is like this idea that everything is like sneering at authority and rebelling mm-hmm. for rebellion's sake. Um, like I was there's a show that is out called The Boys on Amazon. A lot of people were saying the show was good. So I was like, oh, okay. Well, the guy who wrote the comic is Garth Ennis, and I'm not really crazy about Garth Ennis, but if I'm going to try the show, let me read the comic first. So then I tried to read the comic, and Garth Ennis is a British guy. I don't know if you guys know anything about uh, comic books, but mm-hmm. um, he's, a, he's a British Gen X guy. And a lot of those British Gen X comic creators have that kind of punk rock ethos of being like really rebellious the whole thing is so sneering and full of slurs and just so full of edgelord stuff and i was like oh my god i cannot enjoy this 
Uh, I'm mm. trying, but it's just trying too hard just to be. I mean, they were saying the gay F word. They were saying N word, like all mm. throughout. But, you know, everyone's wearing leather. Like it was so punk rock influenced. And then I made it a couple of volumes in and I said, I just can't take this. Let me just jump to the show. And the show is so much more nuanced and better. Mm. And it's very interesting contrast because it came out in 2019 or whatever. And it's a lot more mindful of what it it's trying to say than this book that came out in the late 90s or early 2000s. But the level to which the culture has changed, like how I think a lot of people don't like social justice warrior types. And I kind of see why, because they can be like pretty annoying with how strident or over the top <laughs> they are. But they really were kind of a necessary overcorrection to a point. Um, mm-hmm. like I'm hoping we can find some kind of synthesis in the middle. But mm-hmm. when I was rereading that piece of Gen X art, which is the, mm-hmm. the boys comic, I it's really drove home to me like wow that effect of punk went so far beyond uh, 1977 England or 1976 Mm -hmm. New York like it really uh, got a whole generation like Gen X the whole reality bet the whole reality bites uh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. all the way down to Seattle and Nirvana yeah definitely I mean I think that some of the the, that whole like and I'm not incredibly well versed in it but like you know like mumblecore and like you know slacker stuff and grunge which like I also like again don't get me wrong like I love a lot of that stuff like as art yeah. you know and like you know I fucking love Nirvana and you know whatever that can be Nirvana on its own could be a whole huge long conversation but like it's so um by that point the that was sort of like the the like main the mainstream punk I guess you could yeah. say mm-hmm. and you know it's like really actively like anti uh anti-action of any kind and um and like anti like you know it's like being depressed is cool and blah 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 blah. everything sucks everything is like it's this you know the ironic detachment of like recognizing like you know our lives are controlled by like the corporate overlords or whatever and like consumerism which is not even really a word we hear much anymore Mm -hmm. um the like anti-consumer you know and this is what happens like with with anything that that could be in any way challenging to capital it becomes something that's like beneficial to it so like anything that challenges like anti-consumerism on its face is a is a a concept that challenges capital and like obviously um ineffectively because then it becomes like you buy the anti-consumerist product and you know i think you say see the same thing happening now to some degree with like like anti-capitalism itself almost being like oh yeah they have commercials for turns. products with an anti-capitalist narrative and this is so ironic to see kind of see like you know um mm-hmm. like i remember there was a coke commercial with common and maya and you yeah. find it still mm-hmm. on youtube where it's like gotta be real and the commercial has these people trying to drag common into a meeting and they're gonna make common action figures and common promote this and promote that and he's drinking a coke and he takes a swig of the coke and he's like get out of here i'm not gonna sell out like that it's like oh my god this <laughs> commercial is like so unintentionally ironic on so many levels like it's like meta almost you know and then maya's singing about cokes and everything and the whole thing is about how they don't sell out so somehow coke is the one capitalist brand that allows you to keep uh they're on the side of the punks so somehow coke uh yeah be the yeah. biggest american company the biggest international 
brand is somehow the scrappy punk, you know? And yeah, that, that was, it's a signifier of authenticity. I just love, when I saw that, I and was I like, think, we really lost the plot. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and I think also with that stuff, like the buy this product, cause this is the, you know, as you're saying, like, that's a great example. And there's like millions of examples of that shit. Like, um, and with it, with Coca-Cola, obviously it's like the most, you know, that's like the most ridiculous, but I feel like now it's like, even that, like, you know, it's that kind of shit is like winking at the the consumer being like, yeah, we know this is goofy because we are Coca-Cola and like you get that it's goofy um, and that obviously we're not subversive, but you you're in on that joke. You itself know, I too. Don't, I don't and... know anymore. I think that I think they really think we're that stupid because a lot of people <laughs> yeah. really are that stupid. I mean, when yeah. when that when I did that punk tweet or I saw the responses to Steven's tweet, the stunt kind of things that people were saying, I was like, people can really fall for a lot of revisionist stuff of stuff that's not yeah. even that old, like stuff yeah. they put alive for. You could tell them, you could tell people now, ten years ago was radically different than it was, and they'll be like, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you could tell people like this past summer with with the all the protests was radically different than it was oh, yeah. and you know people yeah. believe i mean i mean <laughs> like, right now right that first wave of black lives matter turned into by the end um oscar so white and it was like how did this happen like how did it go from people getting shot in the street unarmed to um more black hollywood actors than ever are going to get awards like they pulled a switcheroo somewhere and and um i was arguing with some people who are really big believers in black lives matter and there was i was saying what did this current crop of activists these social media activists even do and people said without a hint of irony they said uh, uh oscar so white and i was like how is that even right. a solution to the original problem that's just rich people problems you know well it's called it's also cultural yeah again, again it's, it's cultural a cultural solution well. to a political problem so like yeah yeah you know that was two um, years ago revisionism you know right Right. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think Coke, I mean, I think because people like us might think about these things a little harder, we give them the benefit of the doubt. Like we project, yeah. a, you know, <laughs> we project our own intelligence yeah. onto, you know, them and stuff and the other people. But like, I agree that people like you and I and Steven might see the joke, but I think a lot of people really just say, oh, Mayan, Mayan Common are endorsing this and they're cool. So, yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, one of the like um, uh, incredible, like you know, like gaslighting maneuvers that the right is always able to pull is is like making people on the left or young people or people like with sincere political values believe that they uh, that they actually have morals, you know, that they have like a moral <laughs> program that they're committed to. Mm-hmm. Um, when really, like the right literally only par- cares about power and profit, but they are able to convince people that they have these these very like upright sensibilities that have to do with, you know, Christian morality and whatever. And if you're able to convince people of that, um, then yeah, then what people uh, think on the left is like, all right, so the best way to combat that is with like scary rock music, you know, <laughs> to like get like get get like our, our teenage sons to like wear, you know, like metal T-shirts and like, you know, you know, say the F word or whatever. Um, when really like the, the right, like they don't give a fuck like how, um, uh, you know, 
I mean, they're not really offended by anything. They're just, they just know like what will like impact yeah. their like. It, it, it's my, just cynical yeah. weaponizing, you know? Uh, yeah. You know what I think is a great embodiment or distillment of that Gen X uh, leftover boomer attitude toward culture? Like, I feel like it started with the boomers, but Gen X took it to the next level where they just had, like the boomers thought politics smuggled through culture, you know, was going to get the politics across. Whereas I think mm-hmm. the Gen X people took it one step level where they said just the culture, you know, with the devoid of any real um, politics outside of a politics of contra- contrarianism is good enough. So mm-hmm. I think they took it to the next level where mm-hmm. they just cut the politics out of it altogether, really, and just fed the culture and the anti-authoritarian uh, stance. Um, it's footloose. Like, even though it's not technically about punk at all, you know, mm-hmm. it still kind of is punk in that, like the Ramones were kind of looking back to the 50s. There's something really weirdly 1950s-ish about that movie. It feels very mm-hmm. James Dean, very whatever, which I think the punks were kind of tying into. But there's this idea that making people dance is going to stop this small town fascism or getting like the not dancing is not a symptom of a bigger political problem. It is the <laughs> essence of the political problem. Like the culture is like the map is the territory. The culture is is the politics. And if you get mm-hmm. everyone to dance, somehow the rest of this town becomes a utopia. People's home lives are going to get better. Parents are going to stop <laughs> beating and oppressing them or kicking them out the house because they're gay or whatever type of mm-hmm. small town problems happen because now everyone in the town can dance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, 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 yeah, that's right on the money. That's a perfect, <laughs> a perfect, like, like, uh, like creation myth about like culture being like the force that heals society, basically. Yeah, like very few people and I think called the, that a punk rock movie, but I, even though it doesn't have the aesthetics, I feel like it's very much the animating ethos of, of punk runs through that movie. I think that another movie, which I haven't I've been has been on my rewatch list for a very long time, but um, it, you know it's different than it is much more like punk rock is is uh, is a uh, Repo Man and like you know that that is like you know a kid. I, I think that movie is 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 great and like you know this that kid is like a Gen X hardcore kid with boomer parents who like love smoking weed and are basically just like wasteoids sitting on the couch and then like he is you know he's like a working class or poor kid and like his the job he gets is as you know a repo man which is like the the lowest on the totem pole of enforcing you know the property rules of capitalism mm-hmm. but it that's what that job is and it's you know I don't know I don't have a point on that but it's I think that that's like a that you know him walking around he's singing he there's a scene where he walks around and sings TV party by the uh by back by black flag like to himself and like it's I think that that movie or that moment like kind of and and you know everything with his his like wasteoid hippie parents it's like recognizing like yeah there is no like dropping out you know like the 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 60s or 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 like punk like you can be into whatever culture you're into and that's great and like art is one of the things that makes life worth living but like you cannot art and culture cannot like you cannot remove yourself from the we're all you know fish swimming in the water and like you can't get out of the water by dropping acid or listening to the sex pistols yeah the director of repo man alex cox also directed sid and nancy 
Oh, oh very wow. interesting. Yeah. So that adds more credence to the connection. Um, you know, it's kind of funny, but what you said is like, like what you said and what I was saying earlier about how culture as politics is okay, but nothing really beats politics as politics as far as for political yeah. <laughs> change is for some reason, even though the right has a better track record in recent decades at least the second half of the 20th century as far as um, doing grassroots stuff, they've have, a, a lot of them have a weird jealousy of the culture stuff. Like, there's a mm -hmm. long thread of conservatives. Fox News tried to have their own type of daily show type of thing. It was terrible. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even someone that like worships at the altar of the daily show, but compared to Fox News' version of it, I mean, theirs was really, really bad. They were just too strident and too angry to really do the hip detachment thing well. You know, like, they couldn't mm -hmm. do it, but they've tried that the uh, the alt right and Milo they were trying so hard to make conservatism have the trappings of punk rock. What's his name? Gavin McInnes was trying it for a while, but it only worked as far as he can present the racism and sexism as ironic. As he started mm -hmm. trying to get more earnest with it, it just didn't really work as art or pop culture anymore. But um, what do you guys make out of that? Like the idea that if this is a losing formula, it's weirdly one that the right seems almost kind of jealous of that they've been trying to do themselves for like a while. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the alt right, I think, was actually successful to at least the extent that they were able to get like publications like the New York Times to like run articles like with kind of uh, like, you know, like pretty pictures of some of their like spokespeople with headlines like the the hip new face of white supremacy yeah, or something yeah, like that. Like something. Yeah. Yeah. Like they don't those people don't necessarily have culture because like what they believe is like so toxic that it's, you know, like alienates even the people who are a part of it. But like they do have aesthetics and like aesthetic, you know, the aesthetics of, of uh, you know, uh, white supremacy um, are are as easily like co-opted by like you know the fashion industry or whatever as the aesthetics of punk. Yeah, I, I think I definitely think there's a ton of a ton of jealousy with you know from the right you know about the left's culture or, and very broadly you know using terms right and left but like yeah that that the left has won the culture war or liberalism has has american liberals have won the culture war um and i think like the i think also I, I, I do think that, like, the Proud Boys and Gavin, like, definitely has been, in a way, like, the most successful of that. I would agree um, with them. And, you know, because, like, like uh, yeah, because, like, especially, like, when the Proud Boys were, uh, I mean, I don't even know if, like, what percentage of people in America know who the Proud Boys even are. But, like, when they were first I mean, kind now of, they're being know, um, mentioned in yeah. actual presidential debates, even though right. Biden messed up by calling them the Poor Boys in the last <laughs> <laughs> debate, but that they're getting name checked at all like Donald Trump's getting yeah. directly asked about them I agree with you it was not until recent but they did um, penetrate yeah they definitely did and like you know I think that the real um, the real like cultural uh, like arena of, of the right is QAnon and like I think that that is like embarrassing to the to the quote unquote like respectable people on the right or the quote unquote serious people on the right. But like that is their cultural production. That and, is their cultural production. You know, but I will say this about the Proud Boys and especially about QAnon. Who thinks they're cool? That's the thing. Like, right. It is the cultural production. But even when they succeed penetrating the culture, it just seems so chronically uncool. Like yeah. the Proud Boys, <laughs> I'm, I don't have any kind of great love for that first wave of hipsters, but compared to the 
Proud Boys, they do seem way more generally cool. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think one thing they're jealous of with the culture wars is I think they have this idea that those effet, I forget how you pronounce this word, effet, effet, mm-hmm. liberals or whatever, you know, they can't shoot a gun, they can't do this, whatever, but they get laid and they get laid by some pretty um, hot hippie girls or hipster girls or whatever. <laughs> and for all this political stuff I'm doing, I might get a Mormon or something, you know, like I, <laughs> that might be what I don't think even a Mormon from, like this idea that there's nothing because I notice a lot of them complain about oh yeah I, when I try to date and I'm on like those swiping sites and then people find out I'm a Republican and I get discriminated against I, I think like they kind of mm-hmm. have this idea like it's not just about penetrating the culture but being cool even when they penetrate the culture like they just can't be cool like I just those proud boys just have an incel kind of vibe to them that the original mm-hmm. vice crowd um when the one thing you hear about the original vice crowd was there was a lot of sex mm. yeah so I mean it's yeah. not really a question but that's just my my observation uh, here's my last question I'll ask it to both of you one thing I was surprised to find out when I started doing like when I went from just being a fan of punk to like researching the history I was kind of surprised at the degree to which the U.S. punk scene and the U.K. punk scene really had very little to do with each other I thought it was kind of like one big family or whatever but uh, the U.S. punks when I read the um, counts from the time, they thought the UK punks were like really weird and disgusting and dirty and mm-hmm. the spitting they didn't <laughs> like. They didn't get the politics. Something a lot of people don't know, uh, I didn't know, was that New York punk was basically kind of over by 76 and people either moved into more general pop or new wave and then new wave kind of became pop. But New York was already kind of done with it when UK got enamored with it. And then a couple of bands from New York, you know, kind of got in extra year or two of um, relevance by flying to the UK and doing shows there. But even they said they were disgusted by all the spitting and the scene. But there were very much two mm-hmm. distinct movements rather than just two coexisting parts of the same general scene. Uh, I wanted to ask what you guys uh, thought, what your impressions are, what you know of the differences between the UK and the US punk scene. But also, why do you think the UK scene was so much more enduring? Because I feel like that penetrated the mainstream way better than the New York version to the point that that's what a lot of people actually think of when they think of punk from later generations. They think of, and to the point people think they actually started in England or that it is an English art form. Like the Sex Pistols are way more the face of it than say uh, Richard Hell and the Voidoids and television. Um, I One thing I think about the New York punk scene um, is that um, it's it, it proves that um, punk was not something that was, we've been talking about how punk was not ever uh, politically coherent. And I think it also wasn't immediately aesthetic coherent you know like when you it really most New York punk when you listen to it um, it's kind of it, it's surprising that um, that it sounds like it does you know most New York uh, the, the Ramones are probably the one um, uh, exception to this rule maybe but um, there's you know the the New York punk is 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 just kind of like a um, it's a weird umbrella a slightly term, kind of it's a yeah. weird umbrella term um, and it's really kind of like nerdy art music 
most of the time. Um, and I think uh, there were a few um, like signifiers um, that like emerged in the New York scene, like um, uh, you know, spiky hair, ripped shirts, um, the Ramones, like kind of like loud, fast, like one, two, three, four beat. Um, uh, these were like not like definitive of New York punk. These were just like part of like a larger landscape. And I think like Malcolm McLaren um, and uh, whoever was like consciously architecting the UK scene was just smart enough to know like this is the stuff that's like really like surprising to people. And if you just like br- like use just those elements um, and make it like a very like coherent stripped down thing, like people will respond to that. And then people will also respond to it um, if the musicians are literally like getting in fights with the audience at the shows <laughs> and like, um, you know, using the C word. Yeah, um, there was a lot more consistency yeah. to it for sure, both visually and uh, stylistically than the New York stuff. Some of it is very, very warbly and slow and emo as well as uh, fast and aggressive. It's all over the stuff, all over mm-hmm. the map, the New York stuff. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think the Ramones were like, and they had a lot of success in England and they, you know, in terms of the sound, they didn't really, they didn't quite sound like the Sex Pistols, but they were much, much, much closer to the Sex Pistols than like Patti Smith yeah, or, or television or those television, yeah. you know, and it was like the, you know, Richard Hell, his hair was all spiky because it was like absolutely filthy and, you know, he was all dirty and stuff. And like, and then, you know, the Sex Pistols, their hair was like spiky. Maybe it had some like product in it. And then like the hair got even spikier, you know, as like the 80s came around. And then like, uh, you know, the, 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 the like really over the top, you know, Liberty Spikes, you know, mid 80s, early 90s stuff where like that came almost like it came back to uh, the US with like the casualties and stuff like that, Um, which like that wasn't really the punk that I was like particularly into. But like it, it became like like they were aping the Brits who were like aping an element of New York. Um, and now like something that's just a random side note that's like very strange to me is like they're at least in Philly and probably in other places too there's like a lot of people who there is like a scene of people who like dress extremely like 1987 big hair fishnet stockings black eyeliner a lot of leather a lot of spikes punk um, which I don't even know what that's about but uh, and you know I think it is a it's a cool look. I don't think it's like a bad look. Yeah. Um, but it, it's just odd that, you know, these things do, they just cycle. Yeah, come they back. always come back. Like I remember there was this thing called Electro Clash that was happening in Williamsburg in like early 2000s. And it was everyone just dressing like the cover of um, Please Kill Me. It was just everyone was just right. dressing that way. But also like mixing it with New Wave. So like a lot of people were kind of, you know, it's kind of like when you go to a 70s party or an 80s party. Yeah. And there's always this kind of drift of people who just kind of get lazy. So someone will come in as a breakdancer to the 70s party and you're like okay there was no break dancers like there was that going on where people were mixing new wave and punk and it was just like really confused and i think you're right it's about due to come back those things just hmm. keep recycling and i think the shelf life is shorter the only difference is i got a feeling when they come back it's gonna sound really weird like when you actually listen to what they're listening to <laughs> in their headphones it's gonna be like trap music with screeching yeah, or something definitely. weird 
Well, Machine Gun Kelly just released a pop punk album. Really? There you go. Yeah. I don't know if I'm disappointed there or impressed because that's really out of my field. I did not see that coming yeah. at all. Um, it's yeah. probably smart. I, I got a feeling he'll make a better dent in that yeah. than in rap now because I, I think rap is becoming really anti-craft now where mm. if you rap too good, it actually kind of works against you. You got to have that Xanax yeah. sound. So yeah, I yeah. think he's probably better off in pop punk. Any um, parting <laughs> thoughts, things about about this topic in general you didn't get to um say but you think is worth um um pointing out or saying just give you guys the floor to end it cool uh yeah i just want to say like i i uh yeah as you sort of said like you know we've been cracking on punk a lot or or whatever and you know i don't think that there is any i love a lot of the music that we've talked about i've been on a huge clash kick recently for the first time in many years and like you know i i don't think that there the i don't think that there is like anything wrong or fraught or or even much of a contradiction of like enjoying this kind of stuff and in my opinion like recognizing um you know its limits and and not uh raising things up um in esteem um as being like the real deal or or like more more or less impactful than 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 it was at the time because that's you know kind of the trap that i think punk some of the original punks fell into to begin with and it's okay to just like like what you like one of the things that's surprising is how many of them didn't even take it as seriously as a lot of the more hardcore fans did you know like when i read please kill please kill me i was very surprised at how people were taking the piss out of themselves or uh, admitting it wasn't this great coherent uh, thing which is something that a lot of fans today still won't um allow to be the true the truth at all yeah yeah um i mean i think like taking the piss out of yourself is important i think you know taking yourself um too seriously or romanticizing like um uh you know uh, specifically like if you're if you're an artist like romanticizing what you're doing is you know, having an outsized like political um, uh, impact or whatever um, is, uh, you know, n- not, not not the wisest thing you can do. But, uh, I, you know, all the same, like I agree 100 percent with Sam um, that uh, you should like what you like. And like I also like I would never discourage anyone from starting a punk band. Like I would never discourage anyone from like taking part in culture. Like it's an important for I mean, it's it's one of the great like pleasures of my life. And it's also just like it. it it also like helps you like it connects you to other ideas like I even though like I don't think of punk as politics I think like I like you know came to the like political like ideas that I eventually came to like punk was part of like you know my development in that direction I think I think it connects you to people too when that's important like Definitely. scenes get a lot of bad raps and rightfully so because it can be cliquish or toxic or whatever but scenes are also where a lot of people make like lifelong friends sometimes you know and I don't totally. I don't think the internet the same. Like, I don't think an internet scene, no. internet friends, in the long run, if you don't, you know, eventually, like, transfer that into real-life social connection, I don't think it's quite the same. And we're running out of avenues for people to really make um, connections to people. So I would say that, too. I think scenes get a bad rap. Like, I'm not 100% against the idea of a scene or punk rock music or anything, as long as you don't make more out of it than what it is. You know, I think that opens 
the door to a lot of disappointment and toxicity when you um, try to, and I would say in general, and this, this is something that I think is really big in the woke era, is this idea that you can't like something unless it 100% aligns with your politics. So then what yeah, ends up happening right. sometimes is if you like something, you try to rewrite it or retroactively make it fit your politics. And in addition to what you guys were saying about uh, there's nothing wrong with liking punk, there's nothing wrong with liking it and also realizing that there's some fascist elements in it sometimes or reactionary <laughs> yeah. elements. It, you can still like it. It, it can be problematic and still enjoyable or, or good. And you can acknowledge that and still allow yourself a space to enjoy something. So, yeah. Totally. yeah. Uh, thanks, guys, for Thank um, you so much. Thanks a lot, it's man. A really. Yeah, for sure. Great. I think it's a good place to end it. Everybody, uh, be good and take care. All right. Take care. Bye.